This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. This episode is sponsored by The Path, the coach-guided membership designed to help you make alcohol small and relevant in your life by removing your true desire to grab that next drink. Our science-based, compassion-led program allows you not only to shift your behavior and your relationship around alcohol, but more importantly, uncover and reprogram your subconscious conditioning and neural connections that have been keeping you stuck for years. With daily live breakthrough coaching, an intimate and supportive community, regular peer-to-peer connection calls, and a complete vault of resources, this is where your path to total freedom and effortless enjoyment of your new way of life begins. Join us at NakedMindPath.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. I'm here with Zach. Welcome, Zach. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me, Annie. Oh, it's so good to have you. So why don't you sort of walk us all the way back to the beginning? Where, where did your journey with alcohol start? Absolutely. It started pretty early. So my first recollection, recollection of drinking was around 13. I was suspended from middle school. You know, my friends brought in some booze and I was like, oh, cool, let's do that. I came from a family where you drank when you were happy and you drank when you were sad and everything in between. Yeah. So I saw that and you know, I saw my dad, my uncles, everybody partying. I was like, all right, cool. That's what men do. That's what, that's what happiness is. And then it just, it got worse from there. You know, you had that first taste of it and you're like, cool. And my friends, they would have a sip and like, oh, you know, it's, that's disgusting. I was like, no, we got to go harder. Let's do more. And I'm talking like when you're young, like preteen, you know, teenager years for you to have that initially, like I was always the wild animal of the group. And it was interesting because I, I don't know what I was trying to prove or anything, but so that just, that continued through my life. And so I had a rough time. I was a horrible student in high school, but I joined the Navy and that was the best decision of my life that turned everything around. You know, I really helped me find myself. All of a sudden I was proud of who I was, all this confidence. It was great, but the military culture of drinking is real, especially in the Navy. So while I was doing great things, I was also partying as hard as I could, but I had the respect of my men. We would party till two in the morning. I would show up by five, you know, clean shaven, squared away, easy day. And that was my life. You know, we had kids in there, a few deployments came back and things really started to change when I left the military. You know, I left the brotherhood. I decided that I wanted to be a good father and not just a good soldier, sailor, whatever. And so I got out, you know, again, my men respected me, had done great things, a lot of accomplishments to my name, but there were a lot of marks on there where I did some things with booze I should not have done, you know, but it was accepted in that culture. And then when I got out, I found out that the mission, it carried on without me. So I had to build my own. And so I started the blog, uh, The Family Alpha. I started the podcast, The Family Alpha. I started the private group, uh, The Fraternity of Excellence. And all these great things were happening. And I had all of this success. And you talk about this in your book. And that's why I'm really pumped to be on here because I've never read a book where I was like, I could see myself in the story. I was doing everything right. People were looking at me. I'm The blog and the podcast and the group got to the point where I could do that full time. And so I was. I was living the dream and people were like, man, how are you? You're so successful at what you're doing. So I didn't have any DUIs. I didn't have any domestic issues. I didn't have anything that would indicate my drinking was a problem, except that the wear and tear it was having on me. My body started to deteriorate. I started gaining some weight where I used to, you know, be dedicated to the gym. I was like, oh, I'll get to the gym when I can. I was constantly writing. And then all of a sudden I was writing less, you know, my, my writing was a little less quality. It wasn't the greatest. And then I realized, you know, 
time after time, we're going through the kind of the same routine, drink too much. All right, I'm going to take a break. And then again, wake up. Ah, today's the day I got control. Let's drink again. Let's party. Let's go after it. And we do it. And then you wake up in the morning with a hangover. You go to the fridge, have the drink to start the day. And now you're drinking to just ease into your day before it even begins. You had that in your book. And also in the book, you talk, I'm not sure if it was your father, but somebody had spontaneous sobriety. Yeah, my dad. I, I hit that. And when I read that in the book, I was like, man, something clicked. But before I hit that, there was a little bit of an intervention. <laughs> a buddy of mine, his name is Phil Foster. I have to give him a shout out, you know, because he really had that tough love conversation from a friend who he said the things that could have hurt my feelings, but he said it out of love. You know, he reached out. He's like, hey, man, you are doing very well. You know, at that time, I was a motivational speaker. I was on stage. I was going around. The, the blog was doing well. The book sales were doing great. Everything was perfect. But he could see like the eyes, the eyes, you know, it's the soul, windows to the soul. He could see I was getting tired and I was burning out and it was just becoming unsustainable. And I started missing deadlines. And he's like, dude, you're going to ruin all these beautiful things you've done. You know, and I came, my parents split when I was very early. My mother committed suicide when I was six. Going through there, my father was a Navy man himself. So he was always deployed. So I had overcome so many things. I was the horrible student in high school. I spent five years there, but I ended up getting my graduate degree. So I, again, I had all this to my name. I was drinking the entire time though. I was drinking way too much and Ben's drinking the entire time. Mm -hmm. And he said, dude, you're gonna, eventually it's gonna catch you. And so Phil had that talk and I really, I stepped back and I started looking at my relationship with booze. And there was one night I was just looking at the glass of wine in my hand. And I was like, man, like there's no positive for this in my life. And literally my wife is sitting across from me. It was July 7th, 2020. And I looked at her, I was like, hey, I'm done with alcohol. Now she, she nodded, but she could tell something was different because I've done this in the past. I'd said, you know, I'm out, I'm done. You know, we're not doing this anymore. I'm going to get healthy and jacked. And then I would just go right back to it a month later. Something was different this time. And she said, I'll join you. And I, I didn't ask her to, none of that. But both of us are 500 and something days, you know, right now, a year and a half, roughly. Oh, awesome. From that, to, it's incredible. It's great. But it was amazing because the first week of my sobriety, I bought Ed Lattimore's uh, Sober Letters to My Drunken Self and your book, This Naked Mind. And I had read a few others, but those two really st stood out to me. And I was like, man, I'm going to try to get her on my podcast. or I want to try to get on hers. And so this is like one of those huge, like sober milestones to be hitting. And it's like a year and a half in. So I'm like, hey, I'm committed to this. And it's really cool to be here talking to you because honestly, I, I never, I thought it was a part of my identity. If you took away the booze, you took away Zach. That's what made me a great speaker. That's what made me a great writer. In my head, I was like Hemingway. And that wasn't the case, you know, it was me. And so that brings me to here, you know, like I said, a year and a half sober and having overcome quite a bit, I didn't realize how much more I could have done in that time frame. I thought I was doing great. And now I look back, I'm like, man, what a waste. That's, it's so interesting how um, you talk about the Navy and the 2 a.m. till 5 a.m. And I remember having that exact same experience in corporate. Like I remember being in the UK and in the UK, like in London specifically, where the company I worked for was headquartered, the bars would close at 11, but the hotel bars, for some reason, there was some sort of loophole. Like if you were staying in a hotel, maybe they thought, oh, you're foreigners, you're going to, you're, you're staying there, so you're not going to drive. I don't know what the loophole was with the legislation, but for some reason you could stay at hotel bars. They didn't close till three or four in the morning. And I remember multiple times going up to the room two, three, four in the morning and having to be back down in the lobby to take a train to the next country or do whatever we were going to do by six. And just 
having it be such like sort of a, a point of pride that my team is here and I'm the one who's like, you know, here, why are you guys complaining? Like I drink as much as you, like, let's just, you know, rally and kind of being the example, despite being just also exhausted and obliterated, but somehow finding it to be like such a point of pride that I could do it and carry on. It was so strange in hindsight. It really is though. You look at that. It's hard for me to, you know, I, I've listened to many of your podcasts and I hear people and they're like, you know, in a recent one, she was talking about having a glass of wine during watching a movie with her kids or a bottle of wine. Sorry. And I was like, man, I would crush three, four, like, but when I think of this, I'm like, I'm not proud of that, but I would go all in. And, you know, like you were saying, we'd party till the sun came up and then go back to work. And it, you were proud of that. You're like, Hey, why, why, who are you to complain? I'm the one who crushed it. Let's go get shots. And now I look back, I'm like, why? Why did I feel the need to do that? And it's just, it's a difficult line you walk there because you don't want to come across as bragging. I'm not proud of what I did. You know, sometimes shame comes with that. That's actually something I've had to deal with with sobriety. I'm ashamed of what I did. But at the time, I was like, I'm the man. I'm the man who could party hard and work hard. And that's what's up. Yeah, it's so interesting. And, and we just take that as like, this is, it, it really does, like you said, become identity. And I remember feeling that same way, like, who, who am I if I'm not this kind of ringleader of the one, you know, encouraging everybody to drink, rallying everybody to drink, the work hard, play hard culture, countless times that I said, I, I don't trust people who don't drink. Or if we go to a vendor meeting and it wasn't boozy, I'd be like, well, we're not going to hire them. They're, they're not going to be any fun to work with. You know, like I, I filtered so many things from business agreements I would get into to, you know, like the trustworthiness of a person through this filter of alcohol, because I had, I had really taken it on as an identity. And for me, unwinding that and being like, wait, no, there's something, there's two different things happen. There's who I am. And these things about me are actually still true, right? Like I, I still like to be the one who is kind of the boss and I still like to be the one who is leading the charge. And I still like to be the one who's the example and all this sort of stuff. Those things are true, but independent of what I now see as like actually being addicted to a substance. And somehow I just wrapped that up in, in who I thought I was. You know, what's interesting is it wasn't until your book that I looked at alcohol for what it was and not what I thought it was. And again, that's, that's one of the reasons it clicked so well for me is the first time I was like, no, this is an addictive liquid. There's nothing wrong with me for being addicted to something that's addictive. That's right. what it's designed to do. There was something wrong with me for continuing to go down this path though. That's a decision I have to make. And so I pride myself on, on facing the hard things on going through, you know, your past and getting over the skeletons or in the closet or whatever, you know, you want to call it. I pride myself on doing that. And with, with the people I work with, that's, that's what I tell them to do. And so I was like, I can't continue down this path and not be authentic about it. I have to face my own issues. And I realized in doing so, I was able to write better. I was able to record better. I was all of the things I was doing. I'm now so much better at, I will still go to the bar. And this is, it's a little tricky discussion because I don't, again, it's not a flex. It's not a point of pride. Look at me. But when I decided to quit, I can go. And we, we had an event recently after that. It was a convention I was at. I was a speaker there. So you get free drinks. So I was going and buying the drink or getting the drinks free for my friends. And they're like, is that an issue for you being so, you know, soon to sobriety? And it just wasn't. Booze was just no longer a thing. I would grab my club soda or my seltzer and I was happy as could be. But I stayed with them to shut down the bar. We still party. We still walk the town at night. Everything I was doing 
I was still doing, but now I could remember doing it and I wouldn't get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good point. Like you're not facing, I did have one point where somebody took me aside and talked to me, a like kind of executive mentor of mine about my drinking. And he was like, you know, it feels like you're pretty in control, but everybody's looking at you for being the example. And just consider what you want to do with that. And it was so, he was British. So it was very soft, you know, spoken, not very confrontational, but very direct in its own way. And, and I remember that really sticking with me and I didn't make any changes at that time or even years after it, but it was just this idea of like, huh, okay, well, what is it that I want to do with the responsibility of people? Um, like, even if, if you're a manager or if you're, you know, an author or whatever it is that people are giving giving you authority in their lives. And, and how do you want to handle that? What is it that you want to do? And obviously I think there's nowhere that that becomes more true and more formalized than in the military, right? Like where you're actually formally being given authority in, in people's lives. It's interesting when, so I, I was very public about this. In fact, I did the thing you're not supposed to do. It was like day one. So in 2019, I made a YouTube video. I was like, this is the year I go sober the whole year. I'm going to do it. I didn't. I made it like a week. I was like, oh my God. I took the video down. I was like, so embarrassed. So this time again, I was like, it's different. And I was like, I know that's such a cliche thing to say. I, I fully understand what I'm doing and how it goes against everything we all say. I was like, but I'm sharing with you, I'm done with booze. And again, that was a year and a half ago. And I had shared, I think I had tagged you, Ed Lattimore and Phil Foss. I was like, hey guys, you guys, you really locked me and I've got this. And we were going after it. I can't tell you from that moment until today, how many people have reached out and DM'd and it, and I'm, I'm 100% confident you understand this, but I wasn't ready for this. <laughs> and yeah. it, it almost gave them permission to do the same. And I was like, whoa, like I didn't expect, I was just kind of on my journey doing my thing, but I shared it publicly because a big thing to my brand is just sharing the highs and the lows, you know, not just your highlight reel, but being honest. And so I shared, Hey guys, you know, I've been struggling with booze for a while. I'm going to be dropping it, you know, but I'm not moderating. It's just done. I just don't want anything to do with it. And since from then till now, hundreds, hey, I'm 30 days sober. Hey, I'm a week sober. Hey, you know, I've hit this milestone. And all this, they're just people I don't even know. I didn't even know they were following me are reaching out. They're hitting these huge milestones. We had a guy just hit one year sober himself. And he said he started because he saw my issue. And so that authority or the position that you hold, you don't understand how many people are looking at it until you make some moves and then they come to you and tell you. And that was just really, that, that really motivated me just to be better at it. I love that so much. And I think, yeah, it's, I was not prepared for it either, especially because this naked mind was originally just sort of not even intended to really be a book. I just put it out there because it was a collection of my resource and research. And, and I found a way to sort of make it, a, a put it on a website. And I started getting emails from people saying like, oh, this is so helpful. And somebody actually said like, you should make this a book. You should self-publish it. And I was thinking, okay, well, how do you do that? But I did figure out how to do it. And so when I started getting, you know, so many people coming up to me and especially when it started happening in real life, that was really different where people had gotten wind of it in my job. And I remember having my boss come up to me who was ironically the boss who I recall saying at one point in time, like, why aren't you showing up at the bar? That's kind of where the deals are done. You need to be part of this whole drinking culture if you want to be successful um, in not so many words. And he was like, gosh, I was just doing it to keep up with you and, and you're doing it to keep up with me. And like, what is going on here? Like, why are we all doing this to keep up with each other and not even talking to each other? And then when, 
people started talking to me about it. I was not prepared at all. I mean, who knows if you're ever really prepared, but it's just sort of, I think what I started doing early on, which was really not healthy, but I started taking a lot of responsibility for other people's behavior. And, and they would write me an email that was a thank you. And I would, I would read the email and instead of allowing like the gratitude to come in, I would have all of this fear and doubt. Well, what if, what if it doesn't work for you? What if you go back? What if, what if this isn't like, what if I'm being like, I would just be afraid because I was, I was not understanding where my responsibility in this conversation was beginning and ending. And I was like over-functioning, overcompensating for, you know, and, and I've just always kind of been a fixer. Fixing stuff has been one of my primary ways to to kind of handle the world is, okay, I see a problem, I'm going to charge in and fix it. And then all of a sudden, there's a lot of strangers who are emailing me about either, uh, by the way, either thank yous or their, their questions that hadn't been addressed in my writing so far. And, and so I felt so much pressure to kind of fix everybody. And that was really unhealthy. And it took me some time to kind of work out of that. But I just really relate to this idea of like not being ready for kind of authority that people give you in, in their lives, especially when it comes to this topic. What I ended up doing is I ended up taking all those reader questions and I've done probably hundreds of videos where when I get one, I haven't answered before, I just go live on Facebook and I answer it and then we put it on the podcast. But um, it, it was such, and I research it and everything else, but it is so true. Like you're just not ready for, um, yeah, for being an influence uh, to, especially to the extent that you know, I've become influential to people. I still quite like, still don't feel ready for it. Like that's just the reality. It's, it's definitely, it's an interesting thing because you find yourself in a position you couldn't be in until you had gotten over the thing and you, you become somewhat of an authority on the subject. So it's, it's, it's hard to explain it to anybody who's not gotten sober, shared their story and had somebody come to them with questions, like to understand, well, how that I'm similar. I'd get that email and they're like, Oh, Hey, I did this. This is great. In my head. I'm like, but what about this? And are you ready for that? And hey, just if this comes up, you know, make sure that you have something in your hands or bring it to the party. And I'm trying to help solve problems I haven't even faced yet because I know just through the tone of the writing and, and sort of where I think they're going with their story, what's going to be coming down the hill towards them. And that's okay for one-on-one. -on -one. It's hard when you've got an inbox and it's 35 individuals. And then on that, you go on your DMs on, on Twitter and then you've got another 35. Then you go onto Instagram and there's 17. Wait, it gets crazy. And so I've sort of, sort of, just started like kind of sharing my story more and letting people find it. And if they have, it's, it's a difficult thing to balance. There's a lot of DMS I've not read in my, my social media platforms because they keep getting flooded every time I share something, but I try similar to your approach. When I hear it, I'm like, all right, I, if one person's asking, there's probably a lot more thinking about it. Let me make a post about this. Let me share a subject about this, you know, whatever, put a YouTube video, something like that. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think that um, it is, I've come to realize that, and I think that's a big reason this podcast specifically exists, the Naked Mind podcast, is because I've come to realize that all we really can do is share our own stories. And, and I believe in that so much. Like, I think that my job now, as I see it, is not to fix everybody, not to solve anybody else's problems, not to solve anybody else's issues, but to share my own story, how things affected me and allow, create a platform for people to share their stories, because that's how we really heal is in, in each other's stories and seeing the points of similarity and even the points of difference and, and really knowing that we're not in this alone. And 
then also I see it as my job to try and bring together whatever research I can to answer that question in a way that's objective and research-based rather than, you know, the common knowledge that's out there in our society and kind of be a voice against some of that common knowledge that we don't even know where it came from. But, you know, the things like just the basics, like alcohol relaxes us or alcohol is, you know, makes things more fun, you know, things that are so prevalent and so just not actually true under the surface and certainly not true as a a uh, second or third order consequence, you know, we might have a little more fun in the moment, but the second and third order consequences of drinking are, are definitely definitively less fun. Um, and so just being, and, and when I confine my impact to those two places, sharing my own story and doing whatever research I can to bring to light some of the, the things that in our culture and our common knowledge aren't actually true, then I feel out of peace in showing up, right? Whereas before when I was in the, oh, but now I have to look at each, each person coming toward me and try to fix their specific situation. Um, there was not peace there. There was just this, I mean, I was just acting in a way, trying to be something that I was never meant to be. And, and that caused me a lot of inner, inner turmoil for the first few years. So I can understand that for sure. That was actually one of my concerns. You know, when, when I got sober, like booze helped me quiet that voice in my head. Of trying to meet these demands and you know what i really enjoy about the way you go about things on more than one occasion i've seen you push back on a guest or push back on you know somebody that you're speaking to about a certain subject because you're like i don't agree with that and what i like is you know there's not this this cookie cut let's all get along like no let's just actually have a discussion on the facts we don't always have to agree you know and getting sober i was afraid you know well what if that what if i can't relax what if i can't do these things and i realized that's all made up in my head and so for you to be in the environment saying, no, like we're actually going to go in this direction, even though everybody's saying we should go that way. I'm a, a bearded man constantly talking about how to be a better father, how to be a better husband, how to be a better man. I'm a veteran. You know, I'm checking certain boxes and then I'm saying, oh, and don't drink alcohol. And there, it just goes against a lot of the narrative of what's a man. A man holds his whiskey. And I was like, how? so then I'll lay out kind of my story. This is how I live my life. I can't hit your metrics of what a man is, but I can say that if there's ever an issue in my home, and this is one of the, there are many, but this is one of the things that really stood out to me with getting sober. If a kid got sick, if one of my kids got whatever happened at night, if there was a fire, if I'm blacked out on the bed, I'm a liability to my family. Mm -hmm. And here I am talking to these men about how to be a, a, a husband who can rise to the occasion, a man who can like lead very well and take care of himself and mind, body, spirit, all these things. And yet my family would be in absolute trouble if I was blacked out and something happened. That's not what a, a, a family man is, at least in my opinion. And so when I started sharing this, there was a lot of pushback, but I didn't care. I was like, look, I don't agree with you. And that's okay. Like, you don't have to agree with me either, but here's why I stand where I stand. And after some time, a lot of men started coming over and they're like, wow, I didn't realize I was drinking to the level I was drinking. You know, their kids would start playing. Oh, my Barbie has a wine. Oh, my Barbie has a beer. And they're telling me these stories about how their kids are seeing this, but they couldn't see it until they, they saw or heard from somebody like myself, yourself in a position that is living a good life. We're still involved with our families. But we just removed the booze. It just doesn't yeah. have a place. It's not conducive to what we're talking about or we say that we want. And so to see that happen, it's, it's cool to see, you know, you pushing on that front. And I've really enjoyed the fact that a lot of people are changing their perception as to, to what is a man or, or what does, what role does alcohol have in an individual's life? Oh, that's so fascinating and, and true. And I think two things in that that I want to touch on is, first of all, when we start to see it in our kids, 
like that is just like such a moment. And for me, it didn't come when I was drinking because, but it came like years later when my now 13 year old, um, he told me just recently within the last two years, he was like, yeah, I used to sneak sips of you guys as drinks when you weren't looking. And I was like, wait a second, uh, you're 11 now. And I haven't had a drink in at the time, like five years. So what you were like four, (laughs) 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 that's great. You know, and, and just, but it does, I mean, from things that like, why do they always say that phrase? And then you catch yourself saying it, there's such little mirrors and there's such reflections on us, which is fascinating. And then the other point that I wanted to touch on is about just not, you know, what if something happened? not being able to be there for your family. So I have a, um, there was a story that in my life that happened. And I, I feel like I've told this on podcasts, but not maybe this Naked Mind podcast, but there was a time when my oldest, he was really young. He was probably two or three years old. And he was sitting on the couch between my husband and I, and it was the most like benign but bloody accident ever he just leaned forward too far and he fell and the corner of his nose right between his eyes hit the coffee table and it just split open and I remember you could see down to white so whether that was like bone or cartilage I don't think you have bone right there but the cartilage and all this sort of stuff and in the moment and we had been drinking I had been drinking specifically much more than my husband at the time and in the moment I was able to like get him on my lap. We rushed to the hospital. We got him in there. But as soon as I was in there, because it was something about like, I was drunk, all the booze in my system. As soon as I had handed him over to the doctor, I passed out, like literally hit the floor in the ER. And then all of a sudden I'm in the gurney. They're feeding me juice. (laughs) (laughs) He's just sitting in the corner waiting to get stitched up, you know, and I'm the one like that all the medical professionals are having to pay attention to. And it turned out because it was in such a prominent place on his face, the doctor said, well, we need to take him to a different, a different um, surgeon who's a plastic surgeon so that the scar won't be so bad. So we need you to drive him to this other hospital. He's, he's fine to drive. You know, that he'd been out of like the, the immediate danger. They'd stop the bleeding, all that sort of stuff. And the doctor says, but I really need you to drop your wife at home. And, um, and so Brian, my husband, he did, he took me home before he took my son to go get stitched up. And, oh gosh, like even to this day, I'm like, wow, like I was not available to hold his hand when he was getting stitched up. I wasn't available because of my choices. And I promise you, I wouldn't have passed out if I hadn't been drunk. Like I wouldn't have hit the floor. I wouldn't have been, you know, the one that the doctors were like concerned about and trying to get to like, not, you know, be like, I think I even had to get wheel. I think legally they have to wheelchair you out of the ER if you've fainted. And so I think I literally had to be wheelchaired out when I wasn't the one who had the accident. And it was just like this moment of, oh my gosh, but did I stop drinking then? No, like it was years. Um, but it's so true that very real and present danger of if something happens, you're not actually present. You're not actually, you don't actually have the capacity to handle or deal with it. And thank God for Brian, because he did, but I certainly did not. So not only is that story wild like that, <laughs> that's nuts, but to think about, so I have similar stories, you know, we, we all do a- anybody who's drinking the way heavy drinkers drink, they get it. Like they have stories like that, but that last part stands out big time because when I look at all those things that I did, I'm like, I didn't stop, you know? And I was like, 
how many other people are like, well, why wouldn't you just stop then? That's a great wake up. No, it wasn't. It was not the wake up call. It's like, oh, that was an accident that happened. This isn't because of booze. This is because, and your brain does all this mental gymnastics. And then you go back, oh, it's totally cool. You know, he's not going to remember that. For me to even think that it was, I didn't think it was only really recently when I was having a similar conversation on another podcast and, and that sprang to mind, I was like, oh my gosh, I have a real story really about this. But like, I compartmentalized it so much because every single day you're compartmentalizing. Like I was compartmentalizing the waking up at three in the morning with the pit in my stomach, with the self-loathing, with the regret, with the wondering what I did and said, with all of this stuff, with the very next day, just hours later, waking up and getting ready for, for work. And then, you know, thinking, oh, I'm excited for it to be five o'clock so I can start drinking. Like those were almost two different people. Like it was like, I was living with two different human beings with two different agendas inside my head all the time. And so when that whole thing happened, it was completely compartmentalized. It was over here. There was, there was nothing in that experience until now hindsight that would have been a wake-up call for me which is so hard to believe on this side of it because how could it not but in the moment I just compartmentalized it and yeah all the mental gymnastics the oh that was just an accident oh it's just kind of funny oh let's make a joke about it oh isn't it hilarious Brian was taking pictures of me on the gurney because it was just so funny that I was the one being like you know given the juice and and wheelchaired out when my son like we I mean but the ridiculousness and horror of it really is but yeah it was completely it was in my mind I put a, a fortress around certain events and they did not creep into my awareness of this should make me change and I can't explain that I can't explain that I know that that's true for so many different instances of, of people when they're doing things that they know part of them knows that is not right and in hindsight they certainly know how did they keep doing it in the moments it's inexplicable. It's, it's, I don't know. But that's, that's the thing though. That wasn't you. That was the other Annie. You know, my wife, she says she was one of the ones who could pick up a glass, put it down. She was cool. I was not, I, I brought her to the dark side, but she would say things. She's like, you know, there's like two of you. There, mm-hmm. There's like, there's, there's the Zach I know. And then there's a Zach who's drinking, who just wants to party until the wheels fall off. And when that Zach would do things, this Zach would be fine. Like, oh, that wasn't mm-hmm. me. That was just, I was drinking. It's whatever. Let's brush it under the rug. That was me, but you're right. That, that disconnect there, it's, it's not, you know, what is it? Disassociative personality, but it's the closest I can come to explaining it. It's like, that's another dude. The things he would do, I would never do, but that was me doing it. And how do you explain that? I don't have an explanation, but I know that I turn into somebody else when alcohol is in my system. I really like, um, a tiny little part of Malcolm Gladwell. I think it's his most recent book and I'm totally blanking on the name right now. Uh, shoot, I I can't remember the name, but in his most recent book, he talks about this, this phenomenon. And he talks about the idea. He actually went on Oprah and he talks about it. It's a really cool clip you can probably find on YouTube, but he talks about this idea that we think that alcohol makes us more of ourselves. We think it makes us, it just takes down, you know, our the fears that we've built up and it allows us to be truly us like in vino veritas like you know truth with wine like it becomes we become ourselves it's where the truth is it's truth serum and he goes that actually neurochemically isn't true at all like that's not what's happening in the brain what's happening in the brain is something called myopia and it is basically this idea that we lose touch with the part of our brains that make us human 
And the part of our brain that makes us human is the part up here, the prefrontal cortex. And that part of our brain allows us to see the consequences of our decision in the future. And so we don't do certain things because we can say, hey, if I do this now, then this will happen. That's something that animals do not have. And so when we drink, it just regresses us to the more mammalian and reptilian parts of our brain that can't see consequences. And so we lose actual touch with the part of us that makes us most human. And then somehow we've gotten it confused. Well, but it feels so good and authentic in the moment. Well, yeah, because it you've turned off the parts of you that are, have the ability to take responsibility, that have the ability to say like, this may cause harm, you know, in like to see those second order consequences, to see those third order consequences, those parts of you that are really truly you, the most human parts of you, you've numbed and blunted. And so in the moment, it might feel like you're more yourself, but you're not more yourself. You're a much more regressed version of yourself and so that actually is nothing like you and and i just really liked his explanation i'm gonna try to think of, of the title of that book but it was just so oh that's what's happening and it, it's such a myth that it makes us truer to who we really are because that's just that's just not true well it's like devolving you know bringing us back that that's that's very interesting you know when you look at the many things that happen when people are drinking you know like i said people fantasize i fantasized when I drink, I'm going to write better. When I drink, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to speak better. I'm going to do these better things. I remember looking back at my writing and I was like, this is trash. Like this, there's so many typos. It, the sentences don't make sense. It's super long and romantic without punctuation. It, it's, it's garbage. Nobody's going to read this, but in my head, I'm a struggling author. If I take away the booze, who am I? I'm some, uh, a lame sober guy who can't tap into his roots and his feelings. And it, like to your point, that de-evolution that occurs with drinking, you're, you're incapable of dealing with any emotion. You're, 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 that's why you have infidelity. That's why you have drinking and driving. Cause you're not thinking of, you're just acting of what your body feels. And yeah. it's interesting as you're saying that I'm thinking of all this, the like bar stool sports or things like that, where the guys are jumping from table to table and falling through them and just doing these stupid things drunk because they're just like, Oh, I'm just going to jump from a table. Not, Hey, this is a horrible idea. That table's going to break. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm off balance. You're just thinking of, I want to do this thing without anything attached to it. So that makes perfect sense. Actually. I'm probably gonna be looking that book up too. Oh, okay. So it's called Talking to Strangers. Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. It's not about alcohol. There's just a part in it that is about alcohol. And it's fascinating, that part. Um, but yeah, and it's so interesting because if you think about that and you think about that and you start to categorize all of the different things that we do that we regret doing the next day, whether it's jumping from table to table or like, you know, getting way too vulnerable with somebody we don't even know, to pouring our guts out or like weeping or like making some declaration that makes absolutely no sense or like, you know, trying something that we would not normally try sober. And this romantic idea that, oh, but that's who I really am. That's who I would be without the fear. And, but no, 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 that's, that's a, a past version. And actually you can tap in to being that incredible writer, accessing those emotional parts of yourself. So it takes a lot more guts. It takes a lot more courage being somebody who wants that adrenaline rush in a way that maybe is skiing down a mountain or climbing up a mountain or surfing or whatever, instead of jumping from table to table, but do it in a way that actually includes the prefrontal cortex, includes the most of all version of yourself. And, and therefore is, is, not only more fulfilling, but guess what? Newsflash, you're going to remember it. 
So that's super fun because we didn't remember any of that stuff that we were, you know, having so much fun doing. That was like the, the kicker for me. Like, it was so much fun. I didn't remember it. I was like, oh yeah, that's the sense. greatest memory I was told I had. <laughs> you know, we, one thing that has really stood out to me in sobriety as well is all of those things that we drank for, we had to face. And I, yeah. I believe you talk about it, especially public speaking. You know, I was also one like, all right, I need a drink and then I'm going on stage. And then yeah. there was a time where I'm like, all right, I'm not drinking. I've got to go on stage. And I could think so much more clearly. The nerves after a few seconds went away. Yeah. You know, I've never been nervous on, on a podcast ever. And before I was sitting down for this one, I was like, ooh, I'm a little excited. You know, I'm like, that's a good feeling. You know, I've been wanting yeah. to be on here for a while. This is cool. And so I'm down. I'm like, I would, it passed me. Would have had a drink to calm that. Now I've just learned how to get over it. And the same thing, you drink because you're stressed. Well, learn how to deal with stress. Learn how to create habits that remove stress from your life. Find out what's stressing you out and face it. You know, these, again, I work a lot with family men and a large focus. These guys, they have kids, they have jobs. I drink to relax. I'm like, what if you could build a life or cultivate a life you don't have to relax from? What if you could find relaxation in that moment with them? Mm -hmm. You know, instead of talking to your bros about, oh, we're going to start a business, man. We're going to start a business. Why don't you actually hang out with those men without any booze and start that business? Right. And look how far your life can go. You know, you'll have such a better experience if you start doing the things you talk about when you're drinking. Not to mention physiologically, just how much, like for me, at least I would, I would have a lot of mixers. I would snack a lot. But when I stopped drinking, I stopped snacking and stopped having all like the, the mixers with it. So I lost a lot of weight. So I just, I locked it in. So my body was better. My mind was clear. I mean, there, there has yet to be, to be a craving, any withdrawals or any desire at all to go back to that life. I've had mm -hmm. nothing but a positive example. And for some people, they say, well, my experience hasn't been like that. That's okay. You're not bad or better because you are craving it. That's okay. Just go through it because I can guarantee it's better once you get over that hurdle. It's less and they're, they're further and further and further. So it's just, it's been a great experience for me. And honestly, I, I, I know you're not supposed to say it, but I'm good. <laughs> I will not be going back to booze. Life is just way too good without it. That's awesome. I am. Um... When you were talking, I was thinking about why don't we do those things? Why don't we actually sit down and do the work to start the business or to actually, you know, make the changes that we keep talking about? And we talk about uh, we. Um, I run this Naked Mind Institute, which is it certifies coaches to become, you know, coaches in the methodology to help people. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is this concept of motion versus action. And motion is all the talking, right? It's all the pontificating and going back and forth and all the things that you can do that make you feel like you're doing something, that make you feel like you're making progress, but there's no cost associated with it. There's no, there's no fear because there's no risk. But action are the things like actually sitting down and making that business plan. There's risk because you're not gonna fail something you just talked about, but you could very well fail at something you start to do or something you start to try, right? And so when we take action, we have this belief, I believe, that we should not feel discomfort. And it's been fed to us by every point of society, even, even parents, you know, we are so, some, 
sometimes dead set against preventing any sort of discomfort for our children, that we do them a disservice by letting them believe that discomfort isn't part of life or it doesn't really exist. And I think that at the root of why a lot of us drink too much is that we believe this lie that we should feel happy all the time and things shouldn't be hard and things shouldn't be uncomfortable. But the reality is doing the work and your example was just so good of a bunch of people talking around talking about starting a business to a bunch of people like carving out six, eight hours, sitting down around a table and actually buying the URL and actually deciding what the, you know, what things that you're going to offer and what value you're going to bring. That entire experience is going to be fraught with discomfort because there's the discomfort of what if this fails and our lives only get better um, when we're not only do we realize that discomfort is part of the whole thing, but we realize that actually and my husband told me this recently, and it was so profound. I had not heard it in this exact way, but it's not just that all growth happens outside your comfort zone, which is totally true. That all is totally true. Everything good that you want is when you lean into that discomfort, whether it's the discomfort of the craving or the discomfort of the fear of starting the business or whatever the case is, but also staying inside your comfort zone is the most dangerous place to be whether that is staying in the drinking or staying in the talking and the motion and not acting or staying in um, whatever it is that makes you comfortable, it's so dangerous because then you look back and you're like, wow, everything that was available to me is no longer available to me because every the reality, and this is an uncomfortable thing to say, every day that goes by, our options that we have become more and more limited because we are trading our time of remaining in that comfort zone for doing the things that we actually could propel us to where we say we give lip service to where we want to be. No, that, that is so well said. My, my mantra is, is the slogan of my, my site is act non verba, which is deeds, not words. I'm mm-hmm. going to judge you on what you're doing. You can say you love your family more than anything, but you wouldn't stop drinking for your family. So you don't love them more than booze. That's a quick example for this one, but there's many things you could replace that with. But also that redundancy without progress, if you're doing the same thing, I mean, people look at their life. I want to improve. Well, you are currently the, you are the result of every choice you've ever made. That's what, that's what brought us literally to this moment right now. If you want more or different, you have to do more or different. Mm-hmm. And inside the word discomfort, you know, when guys join my group, it's, it's a, a little bit of a culture shock because we come at it with a tough love. Like, it's like, Hey, like we're here to do work. We're not, it's not a private social media club. It's we're here to do some real work. And so the word discomfort, you have to find the word comfort in it. It's there. You got to see it. You have to be comfortable inside discomfort, you know, and they say uh, embrace the suck or smiling in the rubble. You know, when things are going crazy and you're just smiling, it's because this is a part of it. This is life. And, you know, they'll see what you've gone through. They'll, people will see what I've gone through and they'll say, well, I want that. They don't see what happens if you run this whole campaign, you're running ads, you got everything going, but nobody signs up when you launch it. They don't know the fear that comes with that. They don't know having to get over, hey, I just put this whole story sharing this very embarrassing thing about myself out in the world. You guys can rip it apart if you want to, but I have to say this. They don't know that fear when your finger's about to hit that publish button. You know, there's, there's still, still, I've been doing this since 2015. My, my chest gets tight on certain things because I'm like, this is another big one. Here's another project. Here's another big leap we have to take. Let's do it. You know, and then we do it and you're like, wow, look at all the success. Look at all the things that happened and the things that people say they want. They don't see the work that went into it. They might see me. Oh, sobriety was easy for you. You didn't see the six years of me kicking my own butt <laughs> to get to this point. You didn't see me at 13, you know, coming all the way up. Absolutely. It, it's embarrassing. The many things 
you know, I remember right before I left for boot camp, I didn't understand the difference between beer and wine. And so I was drinking solo cups of wine and I was blacked out puking all over the place the night before I leave for the Navy. It was like the weekend before. And I'm just like, you didn't see that. You see me now sober telling my story, you know, sitting on the podcast with this naked mind. There's a lot of work that I had to get over. A lot of reasons to quit. And you know, on this, this path towards success, there are a lot of paths to get off and say, hey, comfortable, comfortable, comfortable. I don't want to be comfortable. I want to live. And to live, you've got to stay on that path and go forward and kind of basically, in spite of all the reasons to quit, push on. And so I see that with a lot of the people that are on here. I see that with what you're doing. You know, but I, I want people to understand it is it being hard means you're on the right path. You know, it be redundantly hard, you're getting in your way. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about growth being hard. You know, life will be very hard on you if you don't get outside that comfort zone because people will pass you by, loved ones will pass you by. People are just going to move on because they can't stay with you. They've got to walk their path. And I think that's an incredibly important point for people to remember. Yeah, I, I really like how it can like kind of be summed up as like, you know, hard now, easy later, easy now, hard later. And I just keep seeing that that's always so true. When I make the tough decisions that feel like the right thing, but man, is it scary. Um, the other side of that is, is a lot of ease and a lot of peace. And then people only see that and they're like, oh, easy for you. <laughs> no, no, no. You're lucky. I hate that. <laughs> I, just, I just did the hard part early on. And if you stay in the easy now, then it, it does become hard later, which I think is just so true. Um, well, this has just been awesome. So Zach, let me ask you two questions that I kind of sum up with. First of all, where can people, where can men who might be listening, who are interested in what you do, where can they find you? My blog is thefamilyalpha.com and the group is fraternityofexcellence.com. Awesome. So we'll put those in the show notes as well. And then let me ask you the question at the end, which is, you know, if you were going to go back to Zach, who is 13 or Zach, who is, you know, in the Navy and drinking till two and waking up at five and thinking everything was just okay. And, you know, trying to get sober, but not doing it like the 2019 post, what would you tell him about what life is like now? I would t tell him about life is right now. Hey, things are going to turn out great. <laughs> there, there's a big, there's a long way to walk. There's a, a pretty blown up field you've got to walk through, but life turns out really well. I'm, I'm pretty pumped with how things are now, but the advice I would give him, you know, me or anybody listening, you know, you have nothing to prove to anyone. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to find whatever right looked like to other people and fit that in. And I realized that it's not my job to be who I think people will like. It's my job to be me. Yeah. And I have one life and I would hate to spend that trying to fit someone else's mold and never fill my own because that's where I belong. My puzzle piece is this and I have to be this. And if 13 year old me could have understood that, I don't think it would have taken as long for me to figure out that alcohol had no place in my life. Yeah, because if you if you feel that, if you know the truth of who you are, you're not trying to maneuver yourself to be something you're not, which is where the discomfort comes from. So much of it comes from trying to be, trying to fit into other people's expectations of us and their model for what they think we should be rather than staying true to who, you know, we, we are created to be. It's that identity we were talking about, you know, yeah. I, I'm the wild guy, I'm the party guy, I'm the, why did I have to keep trying to be that guy? Why couldn't I just be Zach? You know, yeah. and there's obviously some things I had to face and I faced them, but you know, there were probably still a lot of people out there that are afraid to lose that part of themselves because then who am I? And that's a very, that's a heavy question, but it's, it's one needing answered. And the sooner you can answer it, the better. I, I can promise you that. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Zach. This has been really fun and awesome. So thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story. No, thank you for having me.
Hi, it's Annie Grace. I wanted to interrupt this podcast, I guess the end of this podcast, to say that if you're totally serious about actually and truly and forevermore transforming a relationship with alcohol, really leaving it behind in the rear view mirror for once and forever, and changing your psychology about it, we have a program called The Path that I've created specifically for you. Now, it's not for you if you're still dabbling or trying to figure out where you want to be, or maybe even if you still want to moderate. All those things are fine. That's great. But if you're beyond that and you're like, no, I just want to be done with this. I'm ready to invest some time and I'm ready to just make this happen. I want the answer. I want the easy way out. Then I want you to check out nakedmindpath.com and join us in the path where you receive coach guided and community support so that you can truly make this lasting change that you want in your life. And as always, Rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.